Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6 right now. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. And uh, John, chapter 6. We're going to be really focusing over the next couple weeks. uh, Verse, I don't even know where I'm looking at. Verse, uh, here we go. Make sure I'm in the right spot. Verse 60 on down to the end of the chapter, which is like verse 71. So we're going to be taking a sort of a deep dive looking at this. In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that this is one of the most important passages. Um, I think in the Gospel of John for sure, um, if not maybe in the entirety of the New Testament on the subject of discipleship. And if that word is new to you, um, it's okay. We are going to, like I said, take a deep dive and really understand what discipleship is all about. In the Bible, um, I'm not sure if many of you know this, but um, today if you were to ask the average person, like, what, what do you call someone that is a follower of Jesus? Most people would give the answer, that's a Christian. Um, but did you know that in the Bible, that's not the word that's normally used to identify someone as a follower of Jesus. There's like once or twice in which that word is actually used. It's kind of the, the main way in which we use to describe um, those that follow Jesus as a Christian. But in the Bible, the word that gets used over and over and over again, some 200 plus, if not more, times is the word disciple or discipleship. Um, one of the best ways to think about what a disciple is, again, like I said, we'll take a deeper dive into trying to unpack this for you. But the best way to think about it in terms of a word that most of us are probably familiar with is the word uh, apprentice. Someone that is an apprentice to somebody else is someone that is basically organizing or orienting the sum total of their life around a mentor. Someone that is going to train them, show them, teach them whatever tricks uh, of whatever trade that they find themselves involved in. Um, If you take that same word, apprentice, and apply that to the life of Jesus, that's what a disciple is. Someone that has basically oriented the sum total of their life to live the entirety of their life around the person and the mission and the purposes of Jesus. That's really important to really kind of just set as a precedent as we come into this. So over the next two weeks, we will begin to really focus on this. So think of this as sort of entering summer with this cadence of focusing on what discipleship is. In fact, I'm actually thinking about every summer, just kind of as a regular yearly cadence, wherever we're at teaching, whatever it is that we're teaching, just kind of pull back and pause and take some time to really think about what is discipleship, because I think it's an important thing that sometimes it it does make it into regular teachings, but not, I think, maybe all the time. But the importance is that this, I think, uh, is definitive for what it looks like to really truly follow Jesus. And for those of you that might be a follower of Jesus already, uh, you're welcome. It's kind of recap, but hopefully it's good, encouraging recap because it reminds you who you are and, and uh, focuses us back upon the mission that God has called us to in case we find ourselves drifting, which, you know, we're all prone towards that. Or if you are someone that's kind of new to the faith or new to understanding what Christianity is about, this is like the sum total of what it really means to follow Jesus. And what this image hopefully is cast for you is something that you will step into fully, completely, and it will change ultimately your life. So a little bit of context. We've not been in the Gospel of John for the past several weeks because it was you know, Easter, and then we had baptism, and then we had a handful of other things, and we had the actual baptism. Um, so now we're kind of revisiting back into the Gospel of John. 
Uh, again, like I said, we'll be taking a look at the last few passages, verses 60 through 71. I'm going to jump in by giving a little bit of a recap or context. I'll go through these really quickly just in case you missed this. Again, if you want, you can go online. We have all of our messages online for the past you know, several months of looking at this. It was a very lengthy, dense uh, passage that we covered over a series of you know, a couple weeks, several weeks, I should say. So I'll go through this real quickly. Number one, uh, verses six, uh, or sorry, verses one through fifteen, chapter six. Uh, we see first and foremost the chapter starts with Jesus feeding a multitude of people with bread and fish. We see that these people, by the end of that particular moment, they respond by saying, "We want to make Jesus by force become our king." There's something about the life of Jesus, what he was providing, what he was doing, uh, their expectations that we're going to force Jesus to become our king. Um, Part of what that meant is not only him being one that provides for them, but probably more importantly, they had these expectations of what you would call a messianic expectation that Jesus would overthrow the Roman occupation and ultimately establish independence for them. So this is not a small claim, by the way, right? If you remember back in the first century, you have Rome on every street corner. You walk outside, you see Roman soldiers right there. It would not have been uncommon for you and your family going on a nice little Sunday stroll and looking up and be like, lo and behold, there's some dude being crucified, you know, dripping blood and guts and having his eyes pecked out by a bird. And it's like, welcome to the Roman Empire. What's the whole point with this? It's the whole idea is like you don't mess with Rome. This is the way it is. You don't mess with Rome. And so when they're saying and suggesting, Jesus, we want you to become king, what they're basically saying is we want you to become our warlord that's going to overthrow Roman dominance and reassert our independence, that we can be a free state. They're literally talking revolution here. Violent, bloody revolution. Don't miss that. Because Jesus is like, that's not what I'm here for. You guys are missing the whole point. And so what happens, kind of leads us in the very next little movement of the passage or the text, verses 16 to 20, Jesus actually withdraws from this crowd, pulls back, goes up to a mountain, goes and prays, seeks God, and during this little uh, pericope, we see that there's a storm that arises. Jesus tells his disciples, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They hop in a boat. They go to the other side. A storm arises, and it's such a terrifying storm. They are threatened by death. Jesus sees this. He's aware of what's going on. He walks on the water out to them. Uh, They're freaking out because not only is it like we're going to die from a storm, but also this ghost is going to kill us. Like we have no idea who this is walking on the water. It's kind of unusual for people to be walking on water, by the way. And so Jesus hops in the boat, ultimately, and calms the storm, calms their fear, and takes them back to the other side. That's a second movement. Third movement in verses 22 to 59, um, Jesus carries on this very lengthy segment where he claims to be the bread of life. And I just, I'll just read what I wrote because I thought this was kind of funny. Um, Jesus claims to be the bread of life and clarifies uh, the group's confusion by adding, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. It's like tongue-in-cheek, by the way. It's kind of funny. I'm, t- I'm telling you, I'm trying to make it funny here. Um, clarifies, right? Clarifies. Now, that's, you're like, oh, that's clarifying. Eat your body, drink your blood. Nice. Thank you, Jesus. That's helpful. Um, well, it had the same effect upon the disciples as it you know, had upon you, which was like, Wait, what? Eat your body, drink your blood? Cannibalism? Is that what you're calling us into? Like, and again, it raises this big question, you know, why, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he uh, 
um, communicating things like this that are confusing? Why is he not clarifying things in a, in a better fashion or a better manner? Uh, what is Jesus actually calling them to? Is he calling them to cannibalism? Obviously, no, um, because we know that there's very strong prohibitions throughout the Mosaic Law that you're not even allowed to even eat blood. If you eat an animal, you're supposed to drain the blood out of the animal because the idea is that there's life in the blood. And if an Israelite actually eats blood, that was not only sacrilegious, but it was, it was a form of violation of, of life. It was a way of basically um, thinking poorly or thinking less of life. And to God, by the way, life is extremely important. God cares about life, all life, from the womb all the way to the tomb. God cares about all life. All life is significant and important to God. And so when Jesus makes his claim, hey, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me, uh, this is, again, this is a tough saying, which, again, we'll get into the big obvious E on the I chart as to why this is so controversial to Jesus. But all that to be said is that what we see in summary right now is that the Jesus that we get, listen clearly and carefully, the Jesus we get is not always the Jesus we want but the Jesus we need. It's really important to know that. Because again, we live in a culture today where we want to be able to handcraft everything suited to your particular preferences and desires. But the God who made you, who loves you, who knows you, that cares for you, that cares for this world, cares for the sin that's broken and destroyed and ruined, not only you, but also this world, that this is a God that comes in and says, but there are going to be things I'm going to call for and call you into that will not be popular, that might even be offensive to you. But nonetheless, I'm the one that sets the curriculum. I mean, imagine going to school and walking up to the press professor and being like, hey, here's all the things, here's the six bullet points I'm telling you I want to learn from you. They're going to look at you and be like, wait, what? I'm, I'm the professor. Like, you, you don't get to do that. Like, you're here to learn from me, not in reverse. And, but we treat Jesus like that sometimes. Jesus, these are things I will take, and these other things I just simply reject. That's, that's not discipleship, and we'll see that in just a moment here. So what I want to do right now is I want to read the passage. So that was a little bit of the context, and then I'm going to read the passage, and then we will take a look at some of the challenges that we see that are being presented to us in this passage, and then we'll kind of hope, we'll see how far we get. Bottom line is we'll see how far we get. Um, and I promise to not go very, very long. You're welcome. All right, so let's jump in. John chapter 6, verse 60 through 61. Follow along, if you would. I'm just going to read it out loud. Here we go. Again, following the little dialogue that Jesus has, unless you eat my bread, or unless you eat my body, eat my flesh, and drink my blood, you will have no part of me. Now in verse 60, when the many of the disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And there's a very uh, strong uh, language that's being uh, employed here. We'll look at that in two seconds. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling or complaining about this, they said to him, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If it is the Spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew that from the beginning there were those who did not believe who it was who would betray him. And then he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by my Father. Verse 66. And after this, many of the disciples, listen carefully, turned 
back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus then said to the 12, he turns to them, do you want to leave as well? And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. And this is the word of the Lord. There's, I'll jump into this real quick and then we'll kind of circle back. Some thought on like Simon, uh, Judas Iscariot. Um, and there's a theory, there's a theory as to like what was going on with Judas. So some have suggested, some scholars have suggested, and I think some good scholarship have suggested that, that Judas, prior to following Jesus, was part of a group of people called the Sicarii. Some of you might be familiar with that. The word Sicarii is like, like a, an assassin. They would, they would get the name from the dagger that they would use to kill people. Like, so if this is true, Iscari, Iscariot, you know, the word Iscariot could potentially have, it's an odd Hebrew or, or uh, word that's used there. Some have suggested that maybe in that very word, Iscariot is the word uh, Sicarii. And if this is true, um, that would mean that Judas was not just some guy that was out stealing things, though he was, but he had an agenda for Jesus that Jesus was not meeting up to. And this gets really interesting to think about because what that meant is Judas being a part of this group of people, if this is true, of the Sicarii, they were looking at the Roman occupation as a grave evil, that they felt it was their right and privilege to overcome, even if it meant by means of death. It was kind of a Machiavellian type of a way of like accomplish the good at whatever cost, even if it means throwing the rest of the world around you into chaos and turmoil. It's not too dissimilar from what we've seen over the past several years of, quote unquote, certain peaceful protests that erupt into actual forms of destruction of property and other forms of life. Though the main idea is like we will accomplish justice, even if it's at the hands of destruction and violence. And if this is true, then what was going on here is that Jesus is basically saying, I'm not here to overthrow Roman occupation by violence, by bloodshed. And Jesus is making this pretty clear, like in this like little seed form, like one of you is a devil. One of you will betray me. And we know, obviously, we get this little hint that it's Judas Iscariot. Why that's important is because everything that's going on here in the words of Jesus are presenting an incredible amount of challenge. It was the challenge, or I like to think of it as this challenge of discipleship, which is, by the way, the name of this two-part series that we're going to be looking at. Maybe three, but for sure at least two. All right. So this is important because there's two things I want you to notice before we even jump into this even further. The very first portion right there, verse 60, says, the disciples, when they heard Jesus talking about, this is my body, my blood, eat it, drink it, yada, 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 in their mind, they immediately were, were told that they were grumbling or complaining, and they actually turned to Jesus, and they said, this is a hard saying. That word hard saying, some of your translations might be a little bit different. The actual Greek word, there's a word scleros. We get the word like multiple sclerosis or scoliosis from. It's the idea of something that's uh, bent or not straight, 
or even scarring, scar tissues. It's kind of this hardened type of thing. This is what they're saying. Um, some have even suggested another translation could be, Jesus, what you are saying is offensive, intolerable, and, and unacceptable. Can you imagine going to Jesus? Jesus is sitting here being like, hey, guys, listen to the entire community. Hey, guys, unless you eat my body, unless you drink my blood, none of you have life. None of you. And Jesus' own disciples are kind of like, what? This is offensive. What are you saying? True or false, does Jesus sometimes say things that we just simply do not understand? Understand. True or false? True. Are, true or false? Are there occasions where Jesus says things that are straight up offensive to us? Offensive to our sensibilities, especially our modern sensibilities that have been shaped, shaped and formed by a Western mindset, specifically a Californian Western mindset. True, absolutely. There's going to be things that Jesus says that feel very backwards and maybe even oppressive or frustrating or deeply offensive. And this is exactly what we see going on here. So the question is, what do you do when Jesus says something that's offensive to you or intolerable or unacceptable? What do you do? This is the issue that they faced. What do you do? Do you press in? Do you, like, sing a worship song? Do you, like, bow down? Do you say a prayer? Do you, like, what do you do? Do you run away? Do you give Jesus the finger? What do you do in moments like this that are really hard? This is what they're facing. This is what some of you are facing right now. The life of Jesus can be hard. The life of Jesus, following Jesus, is extraordinarily rewarding. However, it is also very, I'd add, very hard on occasion. Jesus looks at the disciples, the next little sentence right here, verse 61. He says, he looks at the disciples knowing that they were complaining, which some of your translations actually might use the word grumbling. Anybody have the word grumbling? Okay, both of you, awesome. Um, this actually is borrowed from an Old Testament passage where it says the, 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 um, the followers of Yahweh or the, uh, the children of Israel they were in the wilderness grumbling against Moses. So this is John's kind of like, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod at this Old Testament uh, group of people, the Jews that were uh, constantly critical of everything that Moses did and critical that everything that Yahweh was doing. And he's saying that the disciples, they were grumbling. But Jesus, knowing that they were grumbling or complaining, Jesus in turns to him and says, listen, to his disciples. These, these would have been his closest. Now, it's, I think it's important to just note real carefully, that Jesus had hundreds of people that were following him. They could be called disciples. But within that, hundreds of people of, uh, that were following Jesus from place to place, spot to spot, interested in what he was having to say. What we also have from that is there were a smaller inner core of people that were following him. We know the number was around 12. We would have called them later the apostles because they were sent out. Um, but we see with regard to that, Jesus turns to these guys and he says to them, and probably girls in there as well, Jesus, equal opportunity. And he turns to them and he says, are, are you offended as well? He can sense the vibe in the room, like the vibe in the moment that he, he knows, he can read the crowd, right? He can tell, you guys are agitated by this. Are you offended too? Are you offended too? And obviously Peter's response is, you know, where else are we going to go? Jesus says, if you want to leave, you can leave. So if Jesus' main objective is to just build this massive movement, he's not doing a great job. And I would suggest to you, that's not what his objective is. 
is to just find a bunch of fans. He'll create a fandom around himself. His aim is to find people that will become an apprentice to him to be utterly transformed and changed and shaped every aspect of their being around the life of Jesus. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into some of these aspects as to not only what discipleship is, but some ways that we find ourselves actually at a setback as Westerners, especially living in California, things that are part of the culture that we live in, part of the water we swim in, the air that we breathe. It's part of the zeitgeist, the vibe of the day in the world in which we live in that we cannot break ourselves out of because it's just simply there. But what we can do is at least be aware of them. And then by being aware of them, uh, make special note uh, to make sure that those things are not influencing us uh, into a form of malformed discipleship. So with that being said, I want to just jump in a little bit further into this because what Jesus seems to be doing is he's, is, uh, he's what is, I guess I would put it this way in terms of a question. What was Jesus saying that was ultimately challenging to them? And I think there's at least two things. Number one, Jesus was challenging the authority of the religious leaders, their authority. He was challenging their authority because they're coming to him. And they're like, Jesus, by what authority have you said these things? Right? So they're like pushing back on Jesus. Then Jesus, in essence, is pushing back on them. And his whole point is kind of like, look, I'm the one that has the authority here. So it's kind of a power contest, power play that's going on between Jesus and these religious leaders. But again, it gets more intricate than that because it's not only that, but Jesus is also calling people into a whole of life submission to his supreme authority. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Again, we don't like the word authority or submission in our world today. It's deeply, deeply offensive to our sensibilities, especially us as Californians. We don't like the thought of having to have someone who is an authority over us. But I want to suggest to you, I don't want you to go into anything blindly. The whole sum total of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you have to figure out your relationship to this word submission. It's like the prophet Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. There's somebody, somewhere, somewhere, some ideology, some thought, some urge, some notion, some impulse, some feeling that you and I as human beings are and will submit ourselves to. And what the call of discipleship is, is to number one, acknowledge those various elements that we oftentimes might be subjected to or submitted to and to resist those things in exchange for submitting ourselves to Jesus as the ultimate authority. That's really what discipleship is. Um, some have even described it this way, that, that there, there is a cost of following Jesus, but there's also a cost of non-discipleship or of not following Jesus because we will all serve somebody. The question is, who are you serving? In fact, I would even go so far as to say, all of us in this room right now, I don't care who you are, you might be like totally irreligious, you may even be straight up atheist. You are a disciple of somebody or something or some ideology. Every one of you. Question for you to maybe work on and think about and journal or whatever is who are you serving today what ideology what thought what mindset what is the ultimate good in your life that you submit your heart mind soul strength over to what are those influences in your life that are like daily podcasts for your soul that you're feeding off of daily ebooks that you're just reading that are like shaping you helping you think they're just there they're just you might think that they're just white noise in your life, but they're not white noise. They're actually scripts that are organizing, scripting your life, authoring your life. 
And the call of discipleship is to make a very conscientious decision to not allow those things to shape you and instead be shaped by Jesus. These challenges that Jesus presents to these guys, they reveal ultimately true motives, intentions, and expectations. In other words, when we find ourselves reading a passage of scripture or hearing a sermon or listening to a podcast or watching something on television that is about the life of Jesus, and it, again, it might go against our typical understanding or sensibilities that we have become wired by in our culture today, where you have a crisis moment or a challenge moment where you're just like, I don't, man, did Jesus really say that? Did Jesus really say marriage is between one man and one woman for life? Did Jesus really have an ethic of moral purity? Did Jesus really say to feed the poor? Did Jesus really say to sell everything you have and give away so that you can have true riches in heaven? It sounds like Jesus is both right and left. No, Jesus is neither. But he does say things that are sometimes resonant with both sides. This is why Jesus has enough content to offend every single human being in California multiple times over. But those become moments in your life of you asking yourself the question, what is this revealing to me about my discipleship and where it's at? That becomes a moment for you to step back, do a little bit of an assessment, and reveal to you what are the true motivations, expectations, and intentions that you have in your heart. See, what we find in this first century moment is that these people that were following Jesus, they wanted Jesus' miracles, but not Jesus as Messiah or King. They wanted Jesus' blessings, but not the one, capital one, who blesses. They wanted the kingdom of peace that Jesus brought, but they did not want the king of peace. They wanted a spiritual advisor, but not a spiritual authority. And I think a lot of us, fall into the latter category where we want an advisor. We want Jesus, the one that gives us incredible spiritual advice to maximize my um, inner intentions for my life. And we treat the words of Jesus as advice that we can comb through and pick and choose and select. I like this element about Jesus. There's other element about Jesus I'll just kind of throw off in the background. I'll selectively choose those bits and pieces of the words of Jesus that are resonant in my soul and other ones that are not resonant so much in my soul I'll get dismissed them and get rid of them. And the point that I would make is this. It, this becomes a revelation to us as to what's really happening in our soul in terms of discipleship. And lastly, I want to finish on this. So I'm going to go through just kind of a quick little definition as to what is a disciple because hopefully this will at least set us up for next week as we begin to kind of unpack a little bit about this. But what is a disciple? And I want to use the little passage that's found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. I'll read it, and I'll kind of unpack it a little bit. In fact, if you need little uh, images to help you remember, think of it as your head, heart, and your hands. Each one of these are going to affect and in, uh, 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 impact each one of these areas of our lives. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 19 says, As Jesus then said to them, his those that follow him, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So I want to give you basically, as we close, three ways of just thinking about what a disciple is. And then you can ask yourself, am I a disciple of Jesus? Or am I being formed and shaped by something else and doing whatever it intends for me to do? So number one, a disciple of Jesus or an apprentice is one who is ultimately with Jesus, both knowing and following him. This is where Jesus says, come, follow me. Come, follow me. There's an exclusivity there. Jesus is not like, 
you know, presenting it as an option. Of course, though it is optional, he's not making the demand, but he is saying that there are terms to discipleship. You will either follow me or you will follow the crowd. You will either follow me or you follow some other voice. You will either follow me or you will follow some other influencer or some other advisor or some other expert on a particular matter. You will either follow me or some other voice that's out there in the myriad right now in this world. So number one, discipleship has to do with being with Jesus, knowing and following him. Secondly, involves being formed or shaped by Jesus. Then Jesus says in this little segment segment here, he says, come follow me, and I will make, I will make. Discipleship is ultimately about formation. We are being formed and shaped by those voices that are most preeminent, prominent within our lives, and those voices that we give ourselves to. That's why I said earlier, every one of us in this room is a disciple. The question is, what are you a disciple of? What value system are you a disciple to? What have you given your heart, your mind, your desires, your longings, your hopes, your expectations, your anticipations over towards? Whatever that is, I can show you that that will shape you into something. I don't have it on me right now, but there's this quote by David Foster Wallace, which I'm actually reading a biography about him right now. He's a fascinating dude. Um, And this passage that he basically quotes uh, in some speech that he had given, he talks about, like, if you value, for example, power, you will become someone that becomes cold-hearted and angry and unkind. His whole point is that we become like those things that we devote ourselves to. So what happens if you devote yourself to Jesus? Glad you asked. Over a long period of time. And I, and I emphasize long period of time. Because many of us want like this quick fix. I say a quick prayer and all of a sudden I'm a Christian and all of a sudden everything is going to go super smooth and easy and I'm going to become this, you know, cantankerous, angry, embittered, rage-filled human being to someone that's like nice and kind and like giving free food to people. Um, And the fact is that that's not what happens. Over a long period of time, you'll become shaped into the image of Jesus, but it gets even better because there comes a point where we will all die, and then when we die, we will be transferred into the presence of King Jesus, and we will become like him in ways that we've never even imagined. In fact, so much so that even C.S. Lewis writes, he says, there are no common, normal human beings. All of us are either this beauty that has been yet to even be discovered. In fact, if you were to see or catch a glimpse as to who you will be one day in some future state, you will be tempted right now to fall on your face and worship that image. Because it's so splendor, splendorous and glorious and amazing and outstanding. Or you will see a glimpse as to who you become as this wraith, this darkness, this evil, this terror that will absolutely frighten you beyond comprehension. And this is C.S. Lewis's way of just saying every one of us are being formed and shaped by whatever it is that we devote ourselves to. So, number one, we see a, a disciple or an apprentice is one who is with Jesus, knowing and following him. Number two is one who is being formed or changed by Jesus. Jesus says, I will make you. And then lastly, it is one who is doing the good that Jesus himself did. Jesus, in this last segment here, says, I will make you fishers of men. This is Jesus' way of basically inviting us into having a life that's filled with purpose. In this context, the purpose is becoming someone that is giving yourself for the good of other people. Not for their destruction, not for violently overthrowing them or crushing them or wounding them or destroying their lives, but for bettering their lives. 
of serving the needs of those that are hurting, of being a voice for justice for those that don't have a voice to speak for themselves for justice, for being someone that does good in this world. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. This is what a disciple is. So in short, again, you want passage to reframe everything around. It's, again, Jesus said, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is what a disciple is. I'm super tempted to keep going on, but I'm not going to, so I'm done. I want to invite you all right now to stand, and I want to pray over us. Because if I even open my mouth one, one more inch, I'm going to go in for another hour and a half, and... That won't be kind for our children back in the children's ministry. So, um, look, in closing, I want for you guys to really ask yourselves, who are you loyal to? Because that's what discipleship is. It's a loyalty to something. In the case of Jesus, it's loyalty to Jesus. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord, the king of my life over everything. Christianity is not just something you do on a Sunday morning or you read a passage once in a while. It is a life transformation. It's a lifestyle change. There's no other way to describe it. Is is you will become a different person as you follow Jesus. For some of you, that's terrifying because you don't you're afraid of what that might look like. We don't like change. But following Jesus is all about him transforming us and making us really the best versions of ourselves that reflect the best version of him. And as a result of that, we become people that love other people that we would never even think about or consider loving. We become like Jesus. So I want to pray over us right now, and then we will close. So Jesus, right now, we bring our hearts, our souls, our minds, our bodies, uh, all to you. God, you made us for yourself. You've given us desires and longings, passions, dreams. And God, we confess that part of the sinfulness that we deal with on a day-to-day basis has disrupted and ruined and misshaped our understanding of true north. We've lost our way, all of us. All of us have lost our way. All of us, like Scripture teaches us, have become like sheep that have lost our shepherd. And we thank you, Jesus, that your whole aim is to come into this world and to take us in your arms and redirect our lives. And in turn, by your act of love and our understanding of that love, become devotees, loyal agents, apprentices, disciples of you. So, God, give us the strength, the power, the energy, the vision that we need to trust you in all of these things. And I pray right now, Father, for anybody here this morning that may not know you. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian or you've been considering the claims of Jesus or maybe you thought you were a Christian because you said a prayer back when you were 14 years old and there's been no actual formation of your life on a day-to-day basis. And maybe right now the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and there's a sense of like, that's me. I'm not a follower of Jesus. My invitation to you is to just confess that to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry I've drifted. I'm sorry I've had a false understanding as to what it meant to follow you. And I want to follow you. That confession of your mouth to Jesus as king, and confession of your sin to Jesus as savior, we're told is the means that Jesus uses to, to 
bring forth a new work in your life, a new direction of your life. It's the first step I would add to what it means to really be a follower of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you prayed that or you want to pray that, I would love to pray with you as soon as we're done. So, Father, right now, I pray for anybody here right now that that's them and they need to have you take their life into your hands and reshape it, remake it, renew it, restore it. Would you do that, Lord? So, God, the rest of us today, we pray that you would empower us and strengthen us as we step out of these doors into the mission field of doing good in this world as representatives of the one that we love, who's loved us. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.